standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and it is new knowledge for me that not everyone has a voice in their head. I can't even imagine how peaceful that must be. When you say voice in your head, I'm going to need more information. (laughs) An inner monologue, your inner voice, Jen. Who doesn't have that? Like half of people don't have an inner voice. Well, who do they... How do they think? Exactly. I don't know. Who tells them off? Exactly. All of these questions. I have no answers, just astonishment and envy. Imagine, imagine not having something just niggling and nagging at you for every little thought that you have. What's being every little thought that you have? I was about to say something, but it's a bit sad. I was going to say, who do they talk to? (laughs) Just me. 2021, keeping up 2020's good work. (laughs) I just heard a little voice say, those people are better than you, Hannah. They're better. Oh, God. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I've turned doing fuck all into an art form. Well done. You win the prize. Of all the things I was going to do over Christmas, I did none of them. And yet I still found time to watch the best dances ever of Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> was Ed Ball's dance on there when he did? Uh, Ed Ball's doing uh, Gangnam Style was on there, yeah. I once watched that 12 times in a row. I was, having, <laughs> I was in a dark place. The voice in my head made me do it. <laughs> and I'm Jen Offord and I need to talk about snacking cheese. Is the person in your head not prepared to chat about it, then, Jen? <laughs> Mickey, uh, sorry, Secret Santa bought me some serious pig snacking cheese for Christmas, and it's changed my life. And I think for the better, possibly for the worse, when I get on the scale sometime soon. But <laughs> what a time to be alive! If you know, if everything else has gone to shit, guys, snacking cheese—you need it in your life. I can only agree. So does the voice in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Later on, I'll be talking to Dr Jodie Gardner about austerity and what the government can be doing to avoid the mistakes of the past as we face another economic crisis. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I talk to Judy Murray about her new women's sports series, Driving Force, and how to turn your kids into tennis champions. And in this week's Rated or Dated, we're taking an inappropriate extracurricular play date with 1996's Dangerous Minds. Wowzers. Yep. But first, schools, new rules, and how you say, absolute <laughs> batshittery. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Jen's back, so it's what we like to call a full bush. <laughs> it's like uh-huh. a Wookiee wonderland. <laughs> oh, hello. It's Tuesday, Mickey here. Come to tell you, excellent Wednesday and onwards listeners, that once again, Monday Mickey and indeed Monday Jen were somewhat scuppered by a last minute BJ U turn. You'd have thought we'd have learned by now, eh? But no, us and the Tory government. As you'll know, the barely sentient gooch that is our Prime Minister took to the nation's airwaves on Monday night to announce another lockdown. Not another one! Just 24 hours after insisting schools were safe and should be open. I liked him best when he was in that fridge, and I detested the incompetent prick then. Anyway, both Jen and I hint that this looks likely to happen, and it has. And so, here we are until, well, mid-February officially, but Michael Gove has already said, basically March, actually. And I've just seen that Johnson's due to give a press conference at 5pm today, so who knows? He's possibly opening schools and rejoining the EU again. Bloody hell. Back to past me. 
We're coming to you from tier 138. Well, or at least we could be very soon. At the moment, I think we're all in tier four, right? Hannah, where's Cambridge? Top of the M11. Ha-ha! Um, yes, tier four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, like three quarters of the country at the moment, are in what's currently the toughest set of restrictions. And yet, as our Prime Minister said on the Andrew Marr show at the weekend, stricter measures coming into play looks incredibly likely. Which shouldn't be surprising, given valid concerns over pressure on an already struggling NHS, the higher transmissibility of the new coronavirus variant, and that sobering, deeply sad daily death toll. I've got to say on that point, it does feel like we've become a bit numb to those daily death figures over the past year, and I I guess that's understandable, but it makes it even more key to remind ourselves that each of those people had a life, hopes, dreams and loved ones. Okay, tougher restrictions are inevitable, but when and what? I mean, who the fuck knows with this shower? Why act now when you could put it off for no reason whatsoever? In case, I don't know what, the virus gets bored and sods off of its own accord? As we record on Monday, Health Secretary Hat Mancock is suggesting action, which may or may not involve putting those areas still in Tier 3 into Tier 4, could be taken with 24 hours notice, and Labour is calling for a full national lockdown. Indeed, news just in from Scotland is that the country looks set to go into full lockdown for midnight tonight. That would seem a sensible move as far as the virus is concerned, although I'm reminded of an excellent tweet I read, but can no longer find, so apologies I can't credit the writer, which said, We never had a lockdown, or we just had middle-class people hiding at home while working-class people brought them things. Well, quite. Luckily, Johnson maintains that with the Oxford-slash-AstraZeneca vaccine now approved, this should all be sorted by Easter. So presumably the number 10 writers are currently slogging their guts out to come up with a snappy new triptych slogan. Such a shame that Take Back Control has already been used in a previous <laughs> shit show, eh? I'm hoping there'll be an uncharacteristic outburst of honesty and we'll get fingers in ears, la la la, blame someone else. Watch this hands-face space. Oh shit, I'm doing it now, maybe they do work. Anyway, clearly we're no fans of the Tories on standard issue, but surely, surely, even dyed-in-the-wool true blues can see headless chickens have more direction than our current leadership. It'd be laughable if it wasn't killing so many people. To it, I leave you with Johnson himself, who said, There is a worrying surge and we'll need to impose stricter measures soon. And he also said, Not a doubt in my mind that schools are perfectly safe. In the same fucking interview. (laughs) Jen, I believe you've got more on the school situation. Yeah, I was going to start by asking what would be more embarrassing than threatening legal action against a local authority after it advised its schools to close early in December, only to then tell all London's local authorities not to open their primary schools in January. And then I remembered (laughs) we're talking about one of Boris Johnson's cabinet members and I thought... It's quite a lot more embarrassing than that, actually, isn't there? Amid rising or, some might say, out-of-control numbers of COVID cases in London and the South East, all of the capital's primary schools have been told to stay shut for the start of the new term. And that's after nine local authorities wrote to Education Secretary Gavin Williamson to ask him to rethink his previous instructions to open as planned this week. So while unions called upon the government to extend school closures further across the country and councils criticised the shambolic handling of the situation, in London, at least, Gav got there in the end. 
But despite the issue having been debated for the last couple of weeks, the decision was announced two days before the start mm. of the new term, leaving parents with um, zero working days <laughs> to get their homeschooling ducks in a row slash figure out how to do their jobs at the same time mm. again. In terms of the virus, it seems to me to be the right decision, but of course it will be predominantly women, usually the primary caregivers and often the lower paid parent, and noticeably consistently absent from the government's decision-making process, who bear the brunt of this. Not to mention the school children themselves, who are, of course, missing out on their education, while the attainment gap between the rich and poor children continues to grow exponentially. Like everything else, the decisions and subsequent announcements around whether school buildings stay shut and learning goes online or not has been conducted in the messiest and most confusing way possible. And perhaps if the situation had been taken more seriously in the first place... Thing is, Jen, it's an unprecedented... Oh, shit. Nope. Carry on. Oh. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I can't stop the government ministers from being shit at their jobs, I'm afraid. But I can at least offer you a valuable home learning resource over the next couple of weeks if you're one of the many people caught on the hop here. Check out primary school teacher and literacy lead Nancy Simmons, full disclosure, she's a mate, on Instagram where she's at two minute teacher mum, that's two, the number two, and is offering free advice on fun ways to help small people learn a thing or two. Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? I had a conversation with someone who works in an old people's home uh, a couple of days ago. I haven't asked them if I could talk about it, so I'm going to be vague about what they said. But the long and short of it is they don't believe that old people should be discharged from hospitals to die in old people's homes when they have COVID. And I absolutely can see their argument fully. But there's also an argument that old people shouldn't be using equipment and beds when they are going to die and when someone could possibly be saved, there's their bed could go to better use. And I understand that argument. So... It's the same with schools. I feel like, I'm sorry, I'm getting dangerously close to using nuance here, but I feel like there's no good answers in this. There are no good answers. One of my little friends, he's 15, he's taking his GCSEs in a couple of months and he has not had a proper education for the last year. And I worry about him and other kids. It feels like schools are very much being used as a political potato as well, right? Yeah. Football, yeah. not potato. Yeah, I don't... I, they're, they're a hot potato. A, a political hot potato <laughs> that you kick. Yeah, I think totally. it's probably fair to say also in London particularly, obviously, you know, it, that is where I live. And also London is primarily, like, the councils are primarily Labour. The MPs are primarily Labour. The Mayor of London is also Labour. And I think you're right, in London it does seem like there has been a bit of... Um, gaming going on around the politics of it all as well and actually like let's just fucking sort it out shall we that game's called potato ball jen please use the correct terminology honestly women i don't know why we've spent our time talking about covid and lockdown when clearly the biggest story in the world is the curious case of ilaria baldwin who well just in case you don't know and why would you She's an Instagram influencer, a podcast host, and the wife of actor Alec Baldwin. And, until recently, the word Spanish may have appeared in that mini-biog. But no, or to use the Spanish, no. (laughs) Turns out, she's just plain Hillary from Boston, who sometimes talk like this. (laughs) K, indeed, K the fuck. (laughs) 
After a Twitter user who has since turned their settings to private made the claim in December, Ilaria's backstory has been unravelling as it appears the only thing Spanish here is the fact that she's been living La Vida Loca. Really <laughs> fucking loca. Not only is Ilaria not from Spain, but neither are her ancestors, it appears. And while her family may have holidayed in Espanol, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to do bad pronunciation, but I don't know whether it seems like I... Uh, okay. And while her family may have holidayed in Espanol and her parents and brothers now live in Mallorca, they moved there when Ilaria was in her late 20s. This is hurting my face to speak like this. Imagine how she's felt for the past 11 years. I know. I mean, in fairness, she seems pretty committed to the bit, speaking fluent Spanish, raising her children bilingual and giving them Spanish names like Eduardo, Carmen, and I'm from Barcelona, I know nothing. (laughs) But it increasingly seems that she has been conducting a decade-long grift. So, how have the couple reacted to this revelation becoming public? Well, Alec Baldwin's not yet gone full Baldwin, but there is time. Ilaria has put out an Instagram (laughs) video as explanation and spoken to the New York Times. So let's take a look at what she said. After all, this is the most important story in the world at the moment. Absolutely. Well, rather than putting her hands up and saying, you know what, I put on a Spanish accent to make myself look interesting to famous people and I couldn't find a way out of it, she's taken a different route. In her own video, she said that she tried in the past to be clear about where she was from, but people didn't always report what she said fairly or accurately. And given the Daily Mail has written about a squazillion stories about her in the last week, how do you say that in Spanish, do you think? Squazillone. Oh, no, that's Italian. I'm sorry. It's my Italian heritage. (laughs) Squillion. Yeah. I'm going to say that actually on that point, the reporting point, when it comes to the Daily Mail, she might be right. But were that not for the fact that she appeared on a parenting podcast in which she claimed to have moved to the US age 19? Or, and I sent you guys a couple of videos, which I hope you've had the chance to watch, where Alec Baldwin said that his wife was Spanish when he appeared on Letterman and did an impersonation of her in a Spanish accent. Or why she appeared on a cooking show and didn't (laughs) appear to know what cucumbers were called in English. Just to be clear, it's green water swords, Ilaria. That's what we call them. <laughs> they live in the back of the fridge until they become fully liquid and then you just release them back into the back into the world. They go back to the earth they came from. In the New York Times interview, she seemed to move on from blaming the media to blaming us. I know, the fucking cheek of it. Here's a bit from the article. She doesn't understand why anyone would think she has portrayed herself as anything other than who she is. Someone steeped in two cultures. She said, and this is a direct quote from Ilaria, people don't have the attention span for that kind of thing. I know, I know. And I think what she means by that is, if you said to me, where were you from, was I from? And I said... Well, Newport Pagnell, although, you know, I did once go on holiday to Australia for a year. You would stop listening at that point, right? Sorry, what was the first bit of the sentence? <laughs> she also had a little swim around in what I'm going to call Rachel Dolezal waters when she said, quote, there is a reason this conversation is happening right now. These are important conversations to have. But as people are able to come out as different parts of themselves and how they identify and have people listen, 
I think that's extremely important. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? It's nothing, some more Jen. potato ball. Right, okay. I think. <laughs> it, means, it means nothing. Perhaps you have to translate it into Spanish and then back into English, and it actually makes more sense. <laughs> Lost in translation, I, I hear you. A row is also brewing, on Twitter at least, about the appropriation of other cultures. And while there is a difference between Hispanic and Latino, that line might be more blurred in the US. So I'm not going to comment on that. But I will say, if you're in Europe and you consider Hispanics not white, you might want to see if the Aryan Brotherhood has a (laughs) meet-up close to you. Here's what Hilaria, or let's just start calling her Hillary, makes of it all. Quote, yes, I am a white girl. Let it be very clear that Europe has a lot of white people in there. (laughs) Love, the whole continent is lousy with them. Fucking hell. It seems exceptionally disingenuous, doesn't it? Por qué? Por qué, Elaria? <laughs> My dad has a flat in Spain and we went there lots as children. Am I now Spanish? Uh, yeah, and you have to start everything with unos, unos, dos, tres, cuatros, and then say what you're going to say. Not a problem. Yeah, that's basically exactly it, Jen. That she spent all of her holidays in Spain as a child and that has made her a bit Spanish. Well, it's good to know See, <laughs> anybody fancy some good news? Yes, please. Yes. Well, let's take a look at Pornhub. <laughs> First time for everything, eh, women? <laughs> Back in December, Pornhub, which is a, well, Pornhub, announced <laughs> it was removing millions of videos from its site in a bid to combat child sexual abuse imagery. And by millions, I mean millions. Some claim up to 80% of content disappeared from the site overnight. Shit, you know. Initially, the company planned to ban all unverified uploads and prevent people from downloading videos, but this was extended to include previously uploaded videos too, all of which will go some way to preventing the circulation of child abuse images, but also videos of abuse of adult men and women and what has become known as revenge porn, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. Yes? Yes. Mm. Well, maybe not all. Pornhub itself, not content with doing a good thing, engaged in a bit of whataboutery on a blog post, writing, quote, this means that every piece of Pornhub content is from verified uploaders, a requirement that platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Snapchat, and Twitter, oh my God, remember Snapchat, and Twitter (laughs) have yet to institute. What progressive bastards they are. (laughs) More news next week. Más noticias la semana que viene. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we visit an old friend. Oh, hey there, gender pay gap. How's it hanging? Low? Because, yes, the pay gap is low-hanging fruit, Noonan, you might well be thinking. And quite right, too. But, hell, if society keeps growing it that way, I'll keep picking it, without even having to raise my head from the screaming pillow I've taken to sleeping on so it's always close by. So yeah, that the gender pay gap still exists is hardly news. And until childcare gets sorted out, it's likely to be the same as it ever was. And until there are some actual bona fide women who give a shit about women in the cabinet, then, well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to dash too many dreams when it's still the first week of January. But let's just say women in their mid-30s and above won't be celebrating equal pay in their working lifetime. I'm sure it's also going to be a you don't say to learn that the recent collapse of big hitters on the high street has affected women much more than men. Given women tend to make up the bulk of the retail workforce, 
and that includes older women and mothers working part-time. See also widespread job losses in the hospitality industry. Recent analysis by Restless found that the median salary among workers over 50 is 23% less for women than for men, working out at around eight grand a year less for full-time work. Not only does that suck a dog's balls for women in the here and now, it also affects future retirement incomes. The state pension age might have been equalised at 66 for both sexes, but decades of a gender pay gap means a wide gulf in private pension savings for women. I'm I'm aware that this conversation is making me and Hannah a little bit itchy because I keep saying the pension word. Uh, So I'm going to move on to... What's what's the pension? I don't know. You've got one. I've got one. You've got one. Have I? Yeah, there's a work one. No hablo inglesa. <laughs> so I can I can now no longer say the genuine truth, which was that I had a zombie apocalypse plan, but not a pension. <laughs> You've got one. It's all right, mate. Oh, great. Well, Stuart Lewis, founder of Restless, said women in their 50s and 60s face the double discrimination of age bias combined with the widest gender pay gap of all ages. That's fun for them, isn't it? That's fun. I to look forward to in it just, in it just, the future, even another reason not to think about it. I do, however, have a bit of good news for sexism of the week, and it is thanks to the UK leaving the EU. Hey, no, don't touch that dial. This is still standard issue. But yeah, the tampon tax is officially no more. Chancellor Rishi Sunak pledged to scrap the 5% VAT rate in his budget back in March 2020, and now we're no longer beholden to the EU rules on sanitary products which deemed them non-essential. He's come good on his promise. Before we hoist him aloft onto our shoulders and carry him through the streets, it is worth noting that the EU is, quite rightly, also in the process of abolishing the tax, and so maybe Sunak should be encouraged to look to Scotland, where MSPs unanimously approved the period products, brackets, free provision, close brackets, brackets, Scotland, close brackets, (laughs) bill in November. That means there is now a legal duty on local authorities to ensure that free items such as tampons and sanitary pads are available to, quote, anyone who needs them. Good. In it. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Dr Jodie Gardner, Director for Studies for Law at St John's College, Cambridge University, one of the editors and writers of a new book about the implications of austerity on the world we live in today. Thank you for joining us, Jodie. Thank you very much for making the time. We thought that you would be the best person to ask what's coming for us, really, in the next few months, given we are recording this before Christmas, but given that there is a a Brexit deal on the horizon and given that the impacts of the lockdown and coronavirus will start to become a bit more clear now. I thought maybe the easiest place to start, if we could actually define what we meant by austerity before we went on. When you talk about austerity, what are you talking about? So we're talking about austerity measures, which are plans and decisions made by the government of the day to decrease public spending in an attempt to kind of balance the books and ensure that there's not an unreasonable deficit for the government. Okay, so you started to study the austerity measures that happened basically post the 2008 financial crisis you began your book in 2019 it's worth saying you finished it during this pandemic obviously you had 
that in mind when you were writing it? I'm guessing that maybe it was coming again. The world has changed so incredibly much in such a short period of time. And when we were writing the book, the government had just announced that it was the end of austerity, that all the austerity measures that were put in place because of the global financial crisis were starting to taper off. So we decided to write a book talking about the long-term implications of austerity measures, particularly on different types of debt. So on individuals' debt, so talking about the increase of payday lending and like the rise and fall of Wonga, but also things like council tax arrears and government debts and how the government had increased their debts and push those down through kind of cuts to councils, which were then pushed down by lack of services to the people who needed it the most. Looking at it more on a historical lens, how this had happened and what the implications were. And then as we were in the final stages of writing up, the pandemic hits and the financial consequences of the pandemic have been huge. And we're in more debt than we were after the global financial crisis. If there was an end to austerity, it was a very short lived. <laughs> yeah, blinking, you missed it. Yes. It's interesting you say that about debt, and I do want to come back to debt because I do have some questions, but austerity wasn't inevitable, was it, when we looked at what happened in 2008, despite the fact that we weren't the only people to do it, and by we I mean the UK, weren't the only people to adopt austerity measures. It's generally accepted that that wasn't the only way to deal with what we were facing. Austerity is so often put forward as the only option in place. And the only way that they can respond to, to financial difficulties experienced by the government. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that austerity is a political choice. There are many other ways that funds could be raised. They could increase taxes, particularly to those who earn the most. Or they could cope with a deficit for a significant period of time until the economy improves. For example, Australia didn't really have the austerity measures that were felt in many different parts of the world. And they continued past the global financial crisis quite economically, efficiently and healthily. So whilst it's put forward as the government had no choice, that is in no way the case. In some countries in Europe, however, it kind of was the case, wasn't it? Because a lot of the countries that were bailed out, austerity was kind of forced on them from above. Yes, they had the option to either default on their, their outstanding loans or to accept a bailment package. And as part of that, take into account austerity measures and sometimes quite significant austerity measures with huge cuts to services. But again, that was a political choice by the organisation yeah. requiring them to go into austerity measures. There was still a choice there. It was just held by a different organisation. The effects of austerity, it seems patently obvious to say it. We're not all in it together. It hasn't affected us all equally. How you're affected depends on things like where you live in the country. So there's a north-south divide and obviously your age. There's a male-female divide. Can you tell me a little bit more about how the facts back up that assumption that I just leapt to there? So we saw it in the original austerity measures in response to the global financial crisis. For example, the councils that were struggling the most already that had the highest demand on their services were the ones that suffered the most because they had the most significant cuts and they were largely in the north, but also around the most deprived areas. We saw that females and people who were in less secure employment, so zero hour contracts or part time employment, suffered the most in terms of employment cuts, both job cuts and also reduction in hours and reduction in securities. 
And we saw young people particularly suffer in terms of job prospects and future uh, prospects. Young people have also suffered in as much as, and here we are revisiting the debt question, I was surprised to discover, um, reading your introduction, that after debt to do with buying a property, student debt is the second largest amount of debt that's held in the country. I was curious as to what you thought of that, but also what you thought of a conversation that's now happening in America about forgiving student debt. I think a lot of people don't realise how significant student debt is and how huge numbers of people are entering the workforce and they're entering kind of quite lowly paid jobs with a forty, fifty thousand pound debt in their name. And that's going to continue with them for an exceptionally long period of time. And there are many professions where they just won't earn enough money to ever repay their debt over their life. So how we can justify putting that debt on midwives or nurses who will be paying that off from their wages for the rest of their life. It's really hard to comprehend. And it's particularly difficult when you see politicians saying, well, these students can't expect a free education. We've got to pay for it. Yet these are the people that went through with a free education or with an education that cost a significantly small fraction of what it costs these days. The examples of midwives, that is something we need as a nation. If we are lumbering people with that much debt, the worst case scenario is that people say, well, then I'll become a lawyer and not a midwife because I've got an outside chance of paying it back if I become a lawyer and I'll never pay it back if I become a midwife. Yeah, they can think that or they can think the opposite. They can go, well, why would I go for this promotion? Because I'm just going to go up in my salary rank and I'm going to have to start paying back my loan. If I stay at this level, if I earn this low amount of money for the rest of my life, I'll never have to pay back my loan. And if people are starting their professional life thinking that, then we've really created a problem. The other interesting thing about debt, and I think it's it's something that we don't understand, a lot of people, if you take a look on Twitter, as to how debt is actually accrued. Because there's this idea that people are in debt because they bought something that they couldn't afford. And that that thing that they couldn't afford that they bought was a luxury. When in fact, quite often what they bought that they couldn't afford was electricity or council tax. I mean, that part of debt is staggeringly huge. I was really quite horrified when I read that. Household debts, the fastest growing and most complex form of debt at the moment. And that includes things like utilities, electricity, water, council tax. And in fact, citizens advice are seeing more complaints both about those types of expenses and those types of debts, but also about how they're enforced. So council tax is almost always enforced by the use of bailiffs, Mm. which is, again, a very stressful, exploitative, expensive form of debt enforcement. Yeah, they go quick to bailiffs as well. And in a global pandemic, sending in the bailiff seems to just be so wrong on so many levels. Well, I mean, finding people for not being able to pay stuff is also really just counterintuitive. If you can't afford to pay your parking fine, your parking fine becomes more expensive. Yeah. And that just seems, yeah, it's it seems crazy to me. And bailiff fees are hundreds of pounds on top of the money you already owe. So you have to pay an organisation hundreds of pounds before you can then start to repay the debt that you owe that you couldn't afford to pay in the first place. 
Yeah. Meanwhile, they've taken the thing out of your house that you likely needed in the first place, like your laptop. Again, that's another thing I think people... If you've got children in your house, you need to pay for Wi-Fi and you need to have a laptop. And the pandemic has proved that, really. So the idea that you could lose those things because you couldn't afford to pay for them is just... It's staggering to me. And you talked before about luxuries, but we've got to think about the type of society that we're in and probably access to a TV to know what's going on in the world yeah. and access to a computer and to internet, particularly if you've got children. It's not a luxury. No. It's a necessity. We have to define what goods people need to live life, not what they basically need to survive, but what they need to live a meaningful, fulfilled life in the community and society that they're in. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you about economics is most of us don't really understand it. And that is, you know, rightly so, because it's incredibly complex. So quite often when we are explained to by, you know, politicians or journalists, they'll use the household economy as an example. I mean, this goes right back to saying to housewives, if your husband brings in this money every week. And I understand why that's a useful sort of way of describing it to people. But when people ask questions, they're then told, well, it's actually way more complicated than that. Do you think we need to be teaching children better about the economy and about money? I wouldn't say we should be teaching them macroeconomics or any of those kind of complex theories. But I think an increased focus on financial education and financial inclusion, kind of highlighting what a credit card is, um, realising that paying your minimum back is not actually paying back your credit card and you will have that and you will be charged quite a significant amount of interest. Understanding the benefits of savings, explaining interest, explaining compound interest, Mm. all of these quite basic lifestyle skills could be explained to, to children in secondary school and hopefully that would improve their understanding when they got out and they had to pay their first lot of rent or they had to get a credit card for the first time. I don't think we really need to be teaching them high-level economics to be giving them the best start to their financial independence. This is all building up to the fact that this is coming back. I mean, our economy is about to be in serious trouble. What we do know is the impact of coronavirus. What we don't know currently where we are now on the 16th of December is what the impact of Brexit is going to be. But, I mean, the warnings were it might be worse than coronavirus. What do you think that the government should have learned about austerity and how do you think the way forward is for them to deal with the current crisis? At the moment, we don't have an indication of what the government is going to do to try and recover from the pandemic. And we don't know, as you beautifully highlighted, we don't know the impact of Brexit, let alone what they're going to try and do to to correspond with that impact. But what we do know from the last time that the government got into big financial trouble, which was the 2008 global financial crisis, is that austerity measures don't work because they increase inequality on many, many levels and they make those who have the least suffer the most. And that's already happened. COVID has already done that. The Child Poverty Action Group has recently released research showing unsurprisingly but exceptionally depressingly that children and people on low incomes have been the people who've been hit by far the hardest by the financial implications of COVID. They don't then need to be hit again by the financial implications of austerity measures in an attempt to recover from COVID. Hmm. I mean there are specific policies that seem to have actually been a disaster. I mean universal credit seems to be a flat-out disaster. 
the five-week wait, I still don't understand and don't think I ever will. Why, if people need to access basic benefits to continue to survive, we force them to wait five weeks with absolutely nothing. And we either tell them to go get a loan from a commercial lender or they could get a grant from the government, but they have to pay it back. Mm. And we're only ever giving them the minimum amount of money that we say they need to survive. So how on earth are they going to then repay a loan that they have to either the government or to a private organisation from that bare minimum level of benefit? Going back to the question I said about student debt being forgiven, I mean, do you think there is an argument for forgiving debts for things like council tax or if not forgiving them entirely what would your suggestion be of a better way to deal with that in our book debt and austerity joanna montgomery from king's college london has written a brilliant chapter on the value both to the individual debtors but also to society as a whole of forgiving a significant amount of uk household debt and just the idea that this debt has been with people for an exceptionally long period of time they are unlikely to be able to pay it off at all or if they can pay it off it will be with significant financial hardship to them so if we could forgive that loan and let these people kind of come free from the shackles of the debt then it would be an invigoration not just of them but of the economy as a whole that makes perfect logical sense to me but I was one of those people that believed back in austerity they'd have been better off giving us all a lump sum of money and telling us to spend it than they were telling us to that's what they did in Australia is is that what they did in Australia well there you go Uh, perhaps uh, government gave everyone a stimulus package yeah just to keep the, the, the economy going. I know slightly more about economics than I thought I did. Um, <laughs> you are also writing another book, which is about something you spoke about earlier, which is payday loans. Yes. That industry, it always seemed terrific. And then there were a number of revelations that I don't think they were revelations. I think the people who had those loans knew that they were appallingly bad, but I don't know that everyone was aware of it. I don't know what I can say legally, but I'm going to say it anyway, <laughs> that they weren't hugely different in their methods than borrowing off someone who we used to call a loan shark. Has there been an improvement or should we still be really worried about payday loans? There there has been a significant improvement. The Office of Fair Trading was the regulator of consumer credit and that was taken over by the Financial Conduct Authority in 2014-2015. And the Financial Conduct Authority has been much more aggressive in their tactics and in their enforcement mechanisms and in their compliance requirements of payday lenders and other providers of high cost credit. So we have seen an improvement there. But the basis of the book that I'm writing about it is that it's actually a lot more complicated than just saying payday lenders are bad, we shouldn't have them, or we should regulate them and make sure that they're not lending to really, really poor people. Because Often that's the only source of credit that these people have in society. Mm. And if something goes wrong, if their car breaks down, if they have a week where they're off sick and they don't get their full wages or they have an unexpectedly high bill in some way, they need to be able to access credit. And these are not the type of people that are probably going to have an authorised overdraft that they can use or a credit card that they can temporarily put things on and then pay it off the next month. And so how do they deal with the ebbs and flows of their financial life? And if the mainstream lenders are not going to lend to them at a reasonable price, then they need to go to some sort of lender to lend to them. And because we're talking about very small amounts of money to people who don't probably don't have brilliant credit histories, the interest rates charged are significantly higher. And then if and when they can't pay them back in time and on full, 
it just keeps on reoccurring and it becomes a cycle where they're paying off significant portions of their you know relatively low incomes to pay off these loans that they can never fully pay off and it becomes what we call a debt spiral but unfortunately if we cut off that debt spiral what do they have left they could go into unauthorized overdraft but in many instances that's actually more expensive Oh, God, don't, I can't tell you the money I've lost in unauthorised overdraft charge because I didn't have a choice at the time. I needed to put petrol in my car and I needed to get somewhere and, and therefore you just put 25 quid's worth of petrol in your car and pay 25 quid extra to the bank for them okaying the amount you you put in. And I did some interviews with people who'd used these types of credit and I asked them why they did and I still remember this incredibly touching interview where this young lady said, at the end of the month, I know I'm not going to have enough money to pay all my bills. So I get a spreadsheet out and I look at what's the cheapest bill to not pay and what's going to Mm. be easier this month to go into unauthorised overdraft or to get a temporary loan to tide me over. Yeah, agreed. I I think there is a ballet that happens when you're like, oh, yeah, you know, British Gas, actually, they give you three months. So maybe, I'll, yeah. And so, again, we often think that people who are using these payday loans are incredibly irresponsible. Mm. And they've gone off and they've bought a giant TV or they've gone on a holiday they shouldn't have been able to afford. But in reality, the vast majority of people I interviewed really thought through their finances. And this was the only option or sometimes the best option that they had. So if we regulate the industry too harshly and we say you can't lend at all, we cut it out, or we say you can only lend to people on moderate to high incomes, then we have this huge group of people who are completely financially excluded. And so then they're going into unauthorised overdrafts or potentially going to illegal lenders or pushing and, and getting loans from family and friends, which can just have significant financial but also emotional ramifications. Yeah. And so this book is kind of highlighting that it's not really payday lending that's the problem. It's, it's, it's a flawed market and there has been some exceptionally predatory things that have occurred that I in no way endorse. But it is a symptom of a much bigger problem, yeah. which is there are so many people in society that are not getting the basic resources they need to live a meaningful life. And we need to tackle that before we start blaming the payday lending industry. That's really interesting. I look forward to reading that. I have one more question for you. You had a baby this year, I believe. Yes. Because you've had a busy year. (laughs) I had a little girl, Rosie, on the 1st of May, which was the peak pandemic day in the first wave. Wow. And you're back to work. My husband's a primary caregiver of Rosie and of her three big sisters. How do you feel as a working mum? The pandemic will affect distribution of labour between men and women in families. Do you think that we've gone forwards, we've gone backwards, we're sort of in the same place as we were? In many ways, we've gone backwards. Um, My situation is quite an exception because my husband, he looked after the new baby and also looked after the other kids Mm. when they weren't going to school and he had those additional obligations because of the pandemic. But statistically, they were by far shouldered by women not just the childcare, but also the increased domestic requirements and also caring responsibilities of elderly relatives. That all came down on women, but they were also still expected to keep their job. If they weren't on furlough, they were expected to work from home with kids and parents and increased domestic obligations. So it was just really, really 
so crushingly hard for these women. And I felt it in different ways as well. Like I'm a young academic in quite a precarious job market. And I felt the need to go back to work exceptionally quickly and to keep on writing and to keep on publishing. When I did have a young baby, when I did have children at home, unfortunately a very, very supportive husband, but it was still additional work having the kids at home. And I saw my male colleagues who didn't have kids or who had a wife who could do it all continue to work consistently and not be impacted at all (laughs) and not feel exhausted and need a glass of wine at the end of pretty much every single day. And it did strike home that uh, we've come so far in many, many ways. But when it comes down to it, it was still much harder for women when it comes to balancing professional and personal. Thank you so much for your time. Jody, Debt and Austerity, Implications of the Financial Crisis is available to buy now and your new book is out... Towards the end of 2021. Okay, well, you seem to be exceptionally busy, so I will forgive you the wait. (laughs) Thank you very much, Anna. Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixter Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined on the phone by tennis coach, author and presenter of a new TV programme on Sky called Driving Force, Judy Murray. Hello. Hello. Nice to chat to you again. You're here today to chat to us about a new show that you're fronting, which is called Driving Force, as I said, which is aimed at levelling the playing field for women in sport. And you are chatting to some really, really excellent top female athletes. Steph Horton, Victoria Pendleton, Dina Asher-Smith, Natasha Jonas, Charlotte Dujardin, Rebecca Adler. Both of the dames, Sarah Story and Kelly Holmes, Christine Uhuragu and Katie Taylor. And the first episode is you. We'll come back to that. But first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about the series and how it came about? Yeah, the the series is called Driving Force and there are 11 episodes. How it came about was there is a TV producer called Rosemary Reed who runs a company called Power of Women TV. So she's very used to interviewing remarkable women from different fields of life but she had never done sport before and most of her work has been done in America although she's British herself. I was connected to her through a mutual acquaintance uh, to see whether I would be interested in getting involved in a series involving top British sportswomen. So of course it's right up my street, Uh, never done any TV presenting before but massive opportunity for me and just you know really was fascinated to see the backstory behind some of our most successful sportswomen, all of them Olympians. So finding out, as the title of the series would suggest, what drove them, who and what inspired them, helped them to get to the top of their sport. They have each been fascinating in their own way, with a lot of commonalities and obviously a lot of differences, depending on the, the, the individual nature of each of the sports. But that was that was how it came about. So for me, it was just like a, a massive opportunity, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean that's that's an absolute dream job really isn't it in the first episode which i watched yesterday which i have to say actually Judy, it made me feel quite emotional watching it you're described in that first episode by billy jean king as and i quote a bit of a disruptor which is pretty cool 
you know, to have to have someone like <laughs> Billie Jean King say that about you because she really was, you know, a, a disruptor. And your story is both kind of extraordinary and also really normal. You talk about things like using sport as a way of, as a sort of social tool, really. But then at the same time, you have two former world number one tennis playing sons. You have done an exceptional amount for women's sport, really a lot more than you need to. So what is it that drives you? You know, I think it is the passion for tennis um, is what underpins all of it. And I think that, you know, I've been coaching for about 30 years and Prior to coaching, I was obviously playing competitively. And sport really was a big part of my family growing up. And it then became a part of my children's upbringing uh, as well. I wanted them to enjoy sport as much as much as I had. But I think that I've never lost my enthusiasm for what I do. And I think it's because I've never become institutionalized. I'm a bit of a lone soldier. You know, I see something that needs to be done or that I would like to do. Uh, and I don't wait for somebody else to do it. I just get off my butt and, 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 and get on with it. You know, I, I tend to, certainly in the, in the last 10 years or so, work alongside people who I really enjoy being with. So as well as loving your sport, you've also got a great group of, of, of people around you who are like-minded. And I think that's a, a very powerful thing as well. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've never lost my appetite for, for what I do. And I do think that as a woman learning how to coach in a very small town in the middle of Scotland, which is a country that doesn't really do tennis, you know, there was nobody for me to learn from as as some of the kids that I was working with got better and better. And I realized, you know, they have double handed backhands and they have topspin serves and that's what they're seeing on the TV. And I learned with wooden racket and I have no clue what, what this is like. So learning how to coach, learning how to coach better, going through different qualifications. But as the kids got better, I realized that I had to invest in myself in order to help them. And that meant that I had to travel to try and improve my knowledge and my learning. And I think because there was nobody to help me and there's no book that you can buy that says do this, then do this, and then then do the next thing because everybody's journeys are a bit different. Um, I think that has really formed certainly what I've done in the last seven to eight years, which is really about uh, trying to build a bigger and stronger tennis workforce across the country, but in particular, a bigger female workforce. We're very underrepresented, um, as we are in most sports. But, you know, I think we really need many more women in the sporting workforce. And that's certainly been the most recent thing that's inspired me to keep going and to use my voice. I think you know, when uh, when somebody significant said to me many years ago, you have a voice, you have a profile, people know who you are, you need to use it. And I'd never really seen myself as being a spokesperson for anything. But once I kind of got into it, um, I realized that as a an older, more experienced coach and understander of human behavior, you've actually got a lot to share with the younger generation and so that's really what I do. So we're talking on December the 17th and we're just a few days before the BBC Sports Personality of the Year award and there's one female nominee Holly Doyle. I think it's probably fair to say she's not you know what you might consider a a household name. I think it's also probably fair to say I mean I could be wrong I could be proved wrong let's see but I think it's probably fair to say she's unlikely to win there's not been a female winner 
at Spotty uh, since 2006 and you have recently said that you think that there should be different awards for men and women and it should be separated out. I'm a big believer in the need for more visibility in women's sport. You know, that there isn't enough of it in any form of the media, particularly on television. So, you know, we're, we've all heard that saying, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. So I think it's much harder for women, unless it's an Olympic year, to really become the household names that people will go out in their thousands and and and, and vote for i mean it's this is this is a, a tricky year and the, the shortlist is very small this year there's been very little live sports but it seems to me that instead of us always talking about why aren't there more female nominees and why did the women get the least votes of everybody instead of talking about it in negative terms why don't we turn it on its head and allow ourselves to really showcase our great sportswomen and let them be seen by everybody on sports personality and let them have their own award. I mean, you know, if you compare it to something like the BAFTAs, you know, you have a, a best male actor, best female actress, uh, and same with the supporting actor and actress. And I, I don't see it any difference in this. And we absolutely have to uh, showcase women's sport more. And this, to me, would seem like the perfect way to be able to do it. And that's quite key, isn't it, in driving force? That's a very sort of central theme to a lot of what you do, isn't it? The idea and something that we talk about a lot on the podcast that, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So you really do need to have visibility in those in those worlds. We, we definitely do. And I think the, the, the main thrust of, of driving force, of course, is to, you know, showcase these incredible athletes and not just to raise awareness or raise profile, but actually to see what went into getting them to where they got to and also to raise a lot of the issues and challenges that still exist for women in sport um, or women's sport and to create a lot of talking points that would hopefully lead to action because you've got 11 real heavyweight sporting women there uh, talking about many of the obstacles that they had to overcome and the, the things that they found difficult and if we can effect change for the next generation of female athletes then that will be a great tick box for us. One of the barriers for women in sport obviously is money and funding you know you've touched on there what a, I don't want to say bad year for women's sport it's been a bad year for sport it's been a bad year for everything really to be <laughs> fair but sport has suffered of course in this last year and women's sport has suffered I think particularly if you look at football for example you know the desperation to get the top two leagues of men's football back up and running and with the women's that you know it's just it's gone it's done you know the, the season's ended so I think that women's sport is definitely again very visibly been the sort of poor relation to men's sport this year how hard do you think it will be for women's sport to come back from this I think it's probably going to be a problem for all sport I mean I think if you look at our national sport which is football you know so many of the not just the top teams, but the lower league teams are really going to struggle because of the financial impact on their business from having no fan income. And if it impacts on the men's side of the game, which is much, much bigger than the women, will undoubtedly impact probably even more on, on the women's side of the game. And, you know, linked to that, there's not been television visibility either. So, so you're losing out on both of those things. And I think what's really sad for women's sport is that we were really had a, a wave of momentum behind women's sport 
coming into 2020. And of course, we've just taken a giant leap backwards because of, of COVID. However, the, the other side that you could see some positivity on is that the impact on everybody's physical and mental health because of COVID can enormously be affected in a positive way by getting out and getting involved in physical activity and sport. So, you know, I think if the government really understands that and sees the importance of that, that and puts money behind it, then we could start to catch up again. But uh, yeah, it, it will have, it already has had an immediate backward effect um, and it will continue to do until we can get out there and be living normal lives again we are about to go into the australian open uh, obviously that will take place under slightly different circumstances I'm not sure what the situation is and i think there's probably time from now for that situation to to change but certainly um, a lot of the well the organizers of the australian open have gone to enormous length to try to find a safe way for the tournament to go ahead and as it stands at the moment players can arrive from the 15th of January and they have to quarantine for two weeks. But within that quarantine, they can create a bubble of six people. So that would be you and another player and two members of staff, maybe a coach and a physio or a fitness trainer. So basically means that in those two weeks, you're only allowed out of your hotel room for five hours a day. So you've got to fit your practice and your travel time to practice and your gym time into that. And you can only practice with one other player for that full two weeks. So I don't think anybody's under any illusions that they're going into this as perfectly prepared as they normally would be for a Grand Slam. And we also have to remember that, you know, it, the Australian Open, although it's been pushed back, it always comes on the back of the off-season. Actually, to get yourself ready, especially if you're one of the guys, to get ready to play best of five sets in 40-degree heat. Difficult to get great preparation for that without actually being in Australia for quite some time beforehand so I mean it's amazing that it's going ahead they, they've, they've done the most incredible job to find safe ways I mean it's a remarkable effort and I think you know the players are very thankful to be able to compete but it's it's going to be very different a very different feel playing with no crowds playing in that heat being bubbled in the in the hotel for probably the best part of four weeks tough times but uh, better better than not being able to play at all so if you were a gambling woman which i'm sure you're not judy but if you were who would your money be on on the women's side of the draw it's tricky because everybody's coming into it you know certainly they'll be undercooked in terms of matches and depending on where they live and what they're able to access in terms of training opportunities the weather, the, the right surfaces, etc. I would put my money on Ash Barty because she's Australian, because she's in the COVID time. She just decided, I'm not doing the US Open, I'm not doing the French, I'm staying where I am. She's used to the weather, she'd be used to the surface, she's not had the 24 hour flight like everybody else. She wouldn't have to do the quarantining because she lives there. So I think that she may well be in the best position to win that title, which of course would very popular down under. I was chatting to someone who's a commentator and he said that he thinks that Serena Williams and her her shot at this 24th Grand Slam, he says he thinks it's done. Do you think it's over for Serena Williams? You know, I think it's very dangerous to write her off. It's the same with Roger Federer. Do it at your peril. I mean, she's just been so 
dominant for so long on the, on the women's side of the game. And again, I think coming into this, we don't know what everybody's been doing. Normally, you you know, everybody's so visible. You see them pretty much week on week, how they're playing, what they're, what they're doing. So, you know, who knows? I think that for all that people may have started to question whether she will win this 24th Grand Slam and equal the, the record that she's trying to, to equal... She did make a lot of finals, <laughs> which she hasn't managed to convert. And whether that's anxiety in the final or or not, who who knows? But I think you can never put it past her. But she has, I think she has said, you know, she wants to expand her family. You know, so time is not on her side, but I wouldn't put anything past, past her. I think she's still got a shot at another one. Well, that's excellent. And um, I've got one final question for you because you have produced two former world number one tennis players. Since we last spoke, I have had a baby myself. She is now six months old, so she's a little bit too young to get started. But Judy, when should I get her started on tennis? <laughs> well, quite often get asked things like that. And I really believe that everything that I did for fun with Andy and Jamie at home really helped them to develop you know the basic hand-eye and foot-eye coordination skills and really it it started with balloons from when they were little they you know they could bump a balloon with their hands even before they could stand if they were just sitting or rolling a ball and you know if they they had their legs in a v-shape rolling a ball and, and rolling it back and I think it's just fun things like that that just get get them started but you can't underestimate what they can learn just by playing fun, active games at home. And if you do it regularly, they learn without realising because they just think they're playing. So um, get the balloons out, Jen. All right, I'm going to trick her. I'm going to trick her into becoming a uh, an international sports star. <laughs> So, Judy, Driving Force is on a Tuesday night at 9 o'clock on Sky Sports Mix, Sky Sports Arena and Sky Sports Main Event. And I absolutely recommend listeners have a watch of it. It's very, very interesting. And I'm sure if you have the relevant channels, you can probably find others on Catch Up. You're on Twitter, aren't you, Judy? Where can our listeners follow you to keep up with the many, many things you seem to be up to? Yeah, I'm on Twitter on at Judy Murray. Very unimaginative there. And I'm on Instagram at Judy Murray with an underscore. Judy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me and all the best with with the rest of the Uh, series. You're welcome and congratulations on the baby. I fully expect to see her. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to... I'm going to give you 20 years. <laughs> 20 years, okay. In 20 years' time, so, watch yeah. out for her. <laughs> Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film do we deserve a chocolate bar, fancy meal, and trip to Alton Towers for sitting through this week? <laughs> This week, we are watching the 1995 classic, but it was released in the UK in January 1996, and therefore, it is 25 years of age, a happy birthday to you, Dangerous Minds, starring Michelle Pfeiffer. Directed by, I'm going to say relatively unknown, John N. Smith, who, and make what you want of this, guys, hasn't made anything I've heard of since then. The film (laughs) was produced by the collective powerhouse of Don Simpson and Sherry Bruckheimer, who were responsible for the likes of Beverly Hills Cop, Flashdance and Top Gun. Bruckheimer went on to produce all sorts of absolute shite, but Simpson sadly died actually on the same day as the Dangerous Minds UK release. I think they were probably connected. (laughs) 
film is based on the book My Posse Don't Do Homework by ex-Marine Luann Johnson about her experiences of teaching at Carlmont High School in Belmont, California, which was at the time, possibly still now, I don't know, an economically deprived city where she taught the naughty kids class. But are they really naughty? Or are they just down on their luck and undervalued by the rat bag of a school board? Pfeiffer plays Johnson, who, one ill-judged karate chop at a time, hopes to answer that very question by setting her class the challenge of keeping, rather than earning, an A grade over the course of a school year. You might not recognise too many other faces in this, apart from Courtney B. Vance, who went on to do an award-winning turn as Johnny Cochran in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Renoli Santiago plays Plucky Raul, while Wade Dominguez plays Bad Boy Emilio who's at least 45 years old. So I checked, right? Because when yes, he so came on, I. I was like, why is that 30-year-old man in that classroom? And so mm. I checked, and he was 30 when it came out. Yeah, so he's not actually 45, but he was eight years... He was only eight years younger than Pfeiffer, who was playing his teacher. He also died not long after this was made, in 1998. Brooklyn Harris plays would-be smarty-pants Callie, but she ends up just, you know, having a baby because that's what women do. Anyway... If you were more highbrow than me, you might compare this to Dead Poets Society, but I'm not going to do that. If the film looks a bit like Sister Act 2, it's because it's basically the same, but with less singing, more tragedy, and no one did as well out of it as Lauren Hill. Most of the classmates look like those in Sister Act 2, like they've actually cast people who even look the same, and actually one of them was in the first Sister Act film. She actually also died a year after this film was released, so, I mean, I don't want to say it was Jinx, but, you know... Rotten Tomatoes gives the film an average score of 4.66 out of 10 and it was largely panned by critics who called out damaging stereotypes, one-dimensional characters and meaningless piffle. (laughs) Although Coolio did quite well out of it and won a Grammy for his part in the soundtrack Gangster's Paradise. So, Mickey, Hannah, I don't think either of you have seen this before, but were you on your knees in the night saying prayers in the streetlight whilst watching this, or did Dangerous Mind give you a ten in your hand and a gleam in your eye? Those are Coolio um, lyrics, by uh, the way. I'd never seen it before outside of what I had seen in the Coolio video, and I'd just like to say, in the interest of saying anything positive at all, that is a great song. Mm, agreed. What a tune. What a tune. Yeah. They use it three times, which is telling, isn't it? They're like, this is the best thing we've got in this film. We're going to use it three times. That's like when I saw, I got sent to a thing for work and I saw Chesney Hawks. Oh, Bear Jones. Right, and he played the one and only twice. Because it is the one and only, actually, there are two more Chesney Hawks songs I could name, but let's not go down there. <laughs> That's a different rabbit hole. But it actually seems to be against the trade descriptions to play the one and only twice. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, Chesney's such a such a maverick, such a rule breaker. <laughs> That's what I've always thought. I hadn't seen it before either. I had heard of it, but I think it is just because Gangster's Paradise was such a massive banger. Yeah, thanks, Jen. <laughs> That's what I've got to say. I can tell you, which I discovered on the Wikipedia page for this film, that Michelle Pfeiffer did win Most Desirable Female in the MTV Movie Awards. I'm sure that's what she was going for. I yeah. agree, yeah. She's yeah, very pretty. To me, this film is, you know, in the fourth season of The Wire, when Bunny gets involved in that project to go and help the kids in school? Yeah. 
and he meets that sociologist and the sociologist goes, yeah, I want to work with older kids. And Buddy takes him down to the police station and Carver unleashes what a 16-year-old kid is like. And then he is just like utterly shell-shocked and then goes, can I have some younger kids? This film is that guy, basically, mm-hmm. in that I don't think it has a fucking clue what anyone that age is. It's so weird. This film is that these kids are supposed to be unteachable rejects. And in fact, she calls them rejects from hell. And all of them want mm. to graduate. All of them actually want to graduate. They choose and, to graduate, Hannah. <laughs> and the point is, the point is, if they're saying that these kids have only been put in this class because they are black or they are Hispanic, like the excellent last one of Small Act about the education system and how it treated black kids and it sent black kids to special schools just to get them out of ordinary Mm. schools. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't approach that. In fact, it has the audacity to cast a Mm. black bloke as the bloke who is oppressing all of these black and other ethnic minority children. What I will say is I think it does actually hint at that. I do think it does hint at that because there's the bit where the girl who's pregnant gets is she's going to be shipped out to a different school because they basically like don't want her on their books anymore. Yeah, but that's because she's pregnant, not because she's black. Also, can no, I just say I... that the new school that she's supposed to go to because she's pregnant is called Clearview. Like they named yeah, it after like a pregnancy <laughs> test. Yeah, yeah. The dialogue in it is so lifetime movie, and it's really expositionary. And although it's hard because there obviously are things that people might say in this, like, he's the first in our family to graduate, right? Uh, people people might say that, but everyone talks like that in this. Everyone's like, hey, I come from a broken name. I don't think anyone uses that expression about themselves when they're talking about their family, do they? No, you say, my mum and dad split up. Or, exactly, dad or I didn't know who my dad was, or stuff like that. You don't say, hey, I come from a broken home. So I think the dialogue was absolutely appalling. But the thing that screams at me is just, I mean, obviously it's got the white saviour narrative and we can talk about that. But it's the bit where, where whatever he's called. Emilio. Who gets killed? Who gets killed? Emilio. Emilio. 40-year-old Emilio gets killed. He goes to her house, which is one of many inappropriate school outings that they go on. It wasn't a romantic date in a restaurant, but nonetheless. But she's talking to him. And from the conversation they have, it would suggest that that kid is also in that school from the conversation they have. Yeah. Right? What crack? What crackhead, right, who, le- who gets released from prison goes to school? Yeah, they. Do. I, I think you would probably, um, if you'd been to prison, I would feel that would be enough to uh, lose your place at the school you were attending. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's, <laughs> there's a lot about this that's not very believable, isn't there? Yeah, the uh, the many play dates that she has with her students, for example, that is just baffling. Inappropriate bordering on grooming. So handsome. You look so handsome in that stolen well, well, jacket know, I'm going to give you the money for. You know when she goes to find why those kids that, that I think are brothers that are in her class, mm. why they haven't turned up to school, and the mum comes out and she says, I know what you're doing. And I thought, oh, she's going to be annoyed. Because, like, she's romancing the children, basically. But no, she was upset because they were reading poetry. Fair play. Um, I don't think anybody's mother would be upset that would stop their kids from going to school for reading poetry. So there's two things there. One, I found it, like, astonishing that the, the school were upset about her teaching them karate, but not upset about her taking them out for dinner, like, on their own. Yeah. And also, 
Like that, it is literally, I can't believe this didn't occur to me at the time because I have to say, I watched Sister Act 2 about five times a day for a year at that age. So, like, how it didn't occur Sorry, to me. Sorry, what, what's that age, Jim? Uh, I was, well, how old was I when Sister Act 2 came out? I think I was 10. Basically, it is exactly the same as Sister Act 2, but like less PG. So, like, the bit where she goes to the house and she says, uh, and the woman says, oh, I don't want you teaching them poetry kind of thing. I mean, that actually happens in Sister Act 2 as well, when she goes to the mum's house and she says, you know, oh, singing won't pay the bills or whatever she says. Like, it is it is exactly the same as Sister Act 2, and I'm surprised that I did not at any point figure that out as a it's, child. It's interesting that, obviously, the poetry, in inverted commas, that she chooses to get them hooked is Bob Dylan, and that is very much in the white saviour mode that she's chosen Bob Dylan because originally Luan Johnson, the uh, the real Luan Johnson, who taught these kids, she used rap lyrics. That's which what I was makes thinking. Sense. Makes exactly much more thinking. sense. Why aren't you using rap lyrics? Because they're whitewashing it. They're whitewashing it for a white audience. That's what oh. Bruckheimer wanted. That's kind of Bruckheimer's demographic, I guess. Mm. Why don't they see? Why are they so blind to see that the ones they hurt are? you, me, and the rest of the audience. It's just, it's, rap was seen or can be seen in white circles as being all gangster and all, like, like swearing and all of this, when some of it is, but most of it isn't. And it would make much more sense to use rap lyrics. Mm. And also for those children to respond with lyrics of their own, which exactly. they didn't, for those children to say, that's like, particularly when they're talking about death, in which the song... Has a theme tune about how, you know, I might not live to be a certain age. Yeah. That none of them would, would, would quote something back at her. So it makes them look utterly unengaged when you can, what you can guarantee is the one thing all, that all 16 year old kids, regardless of background, are engaged in is music. Exactly that. And so you mm. get some dude who was famous in the 60s, obviously people who know who Dylan is now. You get some, but as opposed to someone who is speaking to them in the 90s. It, it's, yeah, I, it seemed odd to me, yeah. It was almost as if they wanted just to go with a pun on Bob Dylan, Dylan Thomas. Yeah. Like, uh, someone thought that was hilarious or something. Which in itself doesn't even really work as a joke, given that Bob Dylan's got a fucking Nobel Prize for writing based on his lyrics Yeah, he got now. for poetry, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. And also, again, just like, okay, you've got two old white dudes and that's how you're going to engage this this class of mainly black and Hispanic kids. it's mm. It goes back to, you know, we've chatted to the people behind the black curriculum on this podcast. You've got, you should have much more black history and more history that's diverse that we're teaching all of our kids. And yeah. this seems like a wasted opportunity. Yeah. Actually, particularly given Dylan Thomas was an addict, which is actually something you think you could engage with children from different backgrounds with that they might speak to them. I say that as someone who has an alcoholic parent, so I'm not being, I'm not being suggesting that other people have them when, when I don't. I do. Mm-hmm. And you think that actually Dylan Thomas might be something you could engage with in that level. Yeah. But anyway, I also wanted to say Lorraine Toussaint is in this very briefly, who people might recognise from Orange is the New Black. She was the in Orange is the New Black. And she is the clever girl's, I don't know, mum or sister, I yes. couldn't work it out. Yeah, I wasn't yes. sure about that. And, I just wanted to say how absolutely fucking staggeringly beautiful she was when she was younger. Like, yeah. incredible. I mean, she looked pretty good in Orange is the New Black, like, 25 years later. But wowzers, 
when she was young. What a looker. So what do you think then? <laughs> rated or dated? I can't believe it was ever rated. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. But I feel like more than that, it probably felt dated. Yeah. When, when it was in 1995. Because they've been making those films about teacher goes into class of unteachable kids. Sister turns Act around 2, around Since 1955, which is before Sister Act 2. Only a couple of years, Jen. But, you know. To serve with love is. Exactly. So, yeah, you're right, Hannah. It, it must have felt dated at the time. That's not changed, Jen. <laughs> Okay, it didn't feel dated to me when I watched it as a 13-year-old, but it does feel dated to me now. And also, I'll say it again, by far inferior to Sister Act 2. (laughs) What are we watching next time? Next week, we are going to be watching Rebel Without a Cause, which is 65. Wow. 65, yeah. That's that's quite old. That's old. old. That is old, yeah. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Standard issue for all women.